All right, welcome to uh, Bible class tonight. Glad you're here and hope you're having a good week. It's good to be with you in this class. We're going to be at the end of 1 Samuel tonight, so I'd love for you to join me there. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you to our congregation this evening. and do hope you enjoy your time here. So we've been looking for a king for a long time. We've been looking for him for, well, we started back, I don't remember when it was, back early in the year, I guess. And I took a break for the summer and then started back in September. And now we're going to come to a conclusion tonight. And we're going to finish up 1 Samuel. This is actually, First and Second Samuel are actually one book. Um, they are broken down into two for links purposes. But, so we're actually starting, stopping right in the middle of the story. And so we don't, we're not going to cover the rest of this, at least not now, but um, we are going to stop at a, at a crucial point. And, I, and I, I think the ancient you know, narrator of the story, he, he did break his story up into, into two sections, and there's a good reason why this is a good place to stop. And I want to, I want to show you that as we get into it. Now, if you're new to the class tonight, we have been studying the book of 1 Samuel for, for a few months. So here's, here's what it's about. When God's people were given the land of Canaan, that he had promised them a long time before, they took the land, uh, but they didn't have really consistent faithfulness to the Lord during that time. And uh, as a result of that, they ended up being oppressed by various people groups. And so they cried out eventually, we, we want a king like everybody else. And God said, I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. I'm going to give you a king like everybody else. And he gave him a king, and that king's name was Saul. Saul was physically impressive, tall, good looking, looked like he could lead an army, and he could. Looked like he could ride a horse, and he could. He could ride out front of his armies, and he could. And uh, so they, they liked it at first, and he led them in, over some, some victories there early on. But then his true nature came out. He was a king like all the other nations around about him. His, his nature was like those people who didn't know God. And as a result of that, things, things that were bad started happening. And so God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to someone better than you, your friend, a neighbor who's better than you, and that is David. So we have the story in 1 Samuel of this, this really, uh, Saul is declining, and David is rising, and and once Saul finds out that David is going to be the next king, he tries to kill David. So you've got that story going on where David is running for Saul. But we come to the end of it here. Been building to this moment for some time. You know, it's been talking about this. It's been hinting at this. And, and so we come to this conclusion of this part of the story tonight. Now, if you've got 1 Samuel open, I want you to do something. We're going to end up in 1 Samuel 31. We'll spend most of our time there tonight. But I want you to see something. This is the last class, and, and it's important for you to, for us to sort of tie some things together so that you see what God has been doing. If you go back to the first part of the book, I'm not going to spend much time doing this, but if you go back to the first part of the book, you may remember some of the stuff that happened. You remember the story of Hannah who prayed for a baby boy, and God gave her Samuel. Samuel's going to grow up, grow up to be the great judge and prophet of God's people, and then you've got the whole deal with Eli. Eli was the priest. He was the, this leader, and he was spiritually shallow. His sons were rebellious. But, but look at chapter 4. I just want to read a verse or two in a couple of different chapters here. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Look at verse 1. 
And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Well, don't know much about those places, but just hold that thought for a minute. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines and killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So you got this, early on in the book, you've got this battle against the Philistines. Philistines are camped at a place called Aphek, and Israel loses, lose about 4,000 people. Look at chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So not only have they defeated Israel, but they've captured the Ark of the Covenant. That was a big deal. It was, it was just a big deal. The Ark of the Covenant was the very presence of God as they viewed it. They viewed it too much that way, probably, as, a, as like a holy relic. But they captured the Ark of God. Chapter 6, the Ark comes back to Israel because it's doing damage among the Philistines, and they decide they don't want it anymore. And then you've got some... Do you know, you get this battle against the Philistines and, and it doesn't go well and they capture the ark and then you have this in chapter 8. Remember this? Samuel's getting old and the people said to Samuel, you're old, verse 5, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. End of that chapter, God grants Israel's request. Saul's chosen to be king and the story goes on. Saul leads them in a victory or two against the Ammonites in chapter 11. Samuel gives his farewell address in chapter 12. But then in chapter 13, you've got Saul fighting the Philistines. I just want you to notice some common themes that go through the book. Saul fights against the Philistines in chapter 13. You've got Saul making an unlawful sacrifice also in that chapter. Chapter 14, Jonathan defeats the Philistines. You notice the Philistines are an important part of the story, aren't they? This whole, this whole thing started kind of going south in chapter 4 when the Philistines defeat Israel and, and, and Israel gets all, they don't know what to do. They, they think, well, if they take the Ark of the Covenant, they'll be okay. That's going to help them defeat the Philistines. That doesn't work. So then they say, well, maybe we just need a king like everybody else. That's going to help us defeat the Philistines. If we just have a king like everybody else, we'll defeat our enemies. Specifically, we'll be able to defeat the Philistines these perpetual enemies of God's people. We'll be able to defeat them if we're like everybody else with our king. It's a very important theme. So, you come to chapter 15, and you've got another important enemy, and that was the Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites? We talked about them a time or two. Chapter 15, God said, you go and you, you uh, enact vengeance on these perpetual enemies, these, these idol worshipers and Really, they did all sorts of awful things the Amalekites did. Saul goes in there and he halfway obeys God, but he doesn't really obey God because he chooses to disobey God's specific command. So the Amalekites. So Philistines and Amalekites. Just, just hold those two people groups in mind because all this is coming together. He's, he's going to tie all this together in chapter 31 when we finish this book tonight. Okay? So the Philistines defeated them in chapter 4. Saul lost his kingdom basically against the Amalekites because he disobeyed God. And in chapter 15, after Saul did that with reference to the Amalekites, Samuel came to Saul and said, God's going to take the kingdom away from you. So the very next chapter, chapter 16, David was anointed king. Now he's a young man. It's going to be a while. you got David and Goliath in chapter 17. David is rising, and now you see Saul's star starting to fall. You go on, and we'll skip through several chapters here, but basically 
for the rest of this on up to where we are. You've got Saul trying to kill David. And so that goes on for quite a while. But the story started with the Philistines and the Amalekites. Okay, The Philistines defeat Israel. We want a king like everybody else. This king led them against the Amalekites. It didn't work out because he didn't obey. God said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. So now David and Saul are at odds. Saul's trying to kill him. And then we come, we're going way ahead. And we, we finally come to where we've been the last couple of weeks. And David is running. He flees to the Philistines in chapter 27. Now look at chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand, and so on. You got, you got that, whole, that whole deal. But then the, the, the author of this book says, okay, we're about to have a war. The Philistines are gathering their forces for war. Now I think in their minds, if, if they're hearing this, they go all the way back to chapter 4. What was... What precipitated their request for a king? Defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Way back at the first part of this book. We want a king like everybody else because we don't know what to do with these Philistines. And we want a king and then everything will be good. So now we come to the end of this book nearly. And what's happening? The Philistines are once again gathering their forces for war to fight against Israel. And then the author takes a detour. And he goes over here. I want to hear about this war, right? I want to hear what's going to happen in this fight. That's not necessarily good storytelling. Kind of leaves you hanging there a bit. Then he goes over here and he tells a story about Saul and the witch of Endor. And Saul is basically, he's lost, lost God as an ally. And he's not seeking the face of God. God's turned his face against Saul and so anyway, we've got, we've got that story. But the Philistines are ready to make war against Israel. Then look in chapter 29, verse 1. Again, the author comes back to this. and He says, now the Philistines had gathered all their forces where? Are you there with me? Chapter 29, verse 1. At Aphex. Does that sound familiar? Back in chapter 4. They gathered their forces at Aphek. They defeated Israel. 4,000 people died. And a couple chapters later, they say, we want a king like everybody else because we can't stand being defeated by the Philistines. We don't have security because we don't have a king. We want a king like everybody else because we want somebody who's going to defeat these guys. So, we come to chapter 28. It says, Philistines are gathered for war. Chapter 29, it says, they're gathered... All their forces specifically at a place called Aphek. And the Israelites encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And then it goes again. He, he kind of detours and he tells another story about some stuff that happened to David that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And then another detour. But this one is particularly interesting because in chapter 30, again in our mind we've got, alright, the Philistines are encamped at Aphek. That's where we were in chapter 4. Against Israel, is it going to be the same thing that happened back then, or how's this going to work out? You know, so he sets he sets us up for it, and then he tells us about the witch at Endor, and then he sets it up for us again, and he tells us about David and and the Philistia, and then we come to chapter thirty, and now he switches and he tells us about Amalek. Well, where do we where have we last heard about Amalek from? Chapter fifteen, when Saul lost his kingdom with the Amalekites. So you got these recurring things coming up. No? But what does David do? Looking, if you've got headings in your Bible, you've probably got one before verse 16 in chapter 30. And we studied this uh, two weeks ago before Thanksgiving. We studied this chapter, and the Amalekites had stolen 
wives and kids and all their possessions and run off with them. And David seeks the face of God. He doesn't seek the witch of Endor. He doesn't seek these sorcerers. He goes to the Lord and God says, you will overtake them. And he chases after them, catches them, defeats them, gets all the people back and all the goods back. David defeats the Amalekites. Now, most scholars think, and I think it's pretty clear when you read this, but most scholars think that that defeat of the Amalekites with David is happening simultaneously with what's happening in chapter 31, when Israel finally goes against the Philistines. So he's been building up to this. Chapter 4, well, things don't go well. They get a king. How's it going to work out with a king? They get what they want. God says, okay, you can have a king like everybody else. I'll give you a king. Let's see how it goes. That, that king doesn't do so well against the Amalekites, but what's going to happen here? So then, just all the stuff coming together here. The Philistines are encamped for war. David's over here defeating the Amalekites, who were Saul's downfall, you know, 16 chapters ago, 14 chapters ago. And so now we come to chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. He's, he's already said that, you know, twice more. Chapter 28, he said it, and then he told another story. Chapter 29, he told it, and told us another story. And then now, he's been building up to this moment. This is, a, this, is a, this, this crucial time. What's going to happen? Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. We'll read that last almost like a postscript paragraph in a minute. But I think the key part of the story here is right here in the first seven verses of this chapter. I mean, this is pretty clear what's going on. He's been building to this since chapter four when you had that first great defeat in the book and then their request for a king. And then Saul starts out with some promise, but then he fails with Amalek. And now you've got this great big battle I mean, he's been building up to this, right? You know, he's talked about it several times. And finally we come, we're wanting to hear what's going to happen in this battle. Of course, we, we sort of know because God's already, he's given some pretty strong hints and he, with the witch of Endor, whole, whole thing, Samuel told Saul what was going to happen. So we kind of know what's, what's going to happen, but here we read about it for real. The battle finally happens. And like uh, often Hebrew narrative, the way it's, it's told quite often, you have the, first, the very first part of the story here in verse 1, you've got the whole story told. This is what happens. And then he goes back and he fills in the details. And so he says, The Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. So that's kind of a summary statement. This is how it turns out. You don't have to wait to figure out what happens. It does not go well. Sort of reminds you, of chapter 4, doesn't it? Except it's worse. 
Because not only do they lose to the Philistines, but they also forsake their own cities. They have to run. And what do the Philistines do? The last verse in this paragraph. The Philistines follow along behind them and they take over their cities. So basically, Israel is on the run and they've lost their homes, they've lost their cities, they've lost their king, they've lost the king's sons. David is off somewhere else. I mean, it's a situation of great despair here. <clears throat> the language, I'm told, is, is pretty... Hebrews often like this, I think, but it's, uh, it's very verb-oriented, um, so it's these strong verbs, and it comes through a little bit in English, I think, but, but I'm told it comes through even more strongly in, in Hebrew, but like verse 1, they fled, they fell slain, a lot of strong verbs, the Philistines overtook, they struck down, the battle pressed hard, he's badly wounded, um, anyway, it goes on, it, Dead. The word dead is mentioned several times in this chapter as well. Uh, just a, it's just a sour note. All right, so let's, let me pause here for a minute and see if we can kind of tease out what we might be expected to walk away from this with. And I think, I mean, I've pretty much told you what I think he's getting at here. I think what he's getting at the main point of this whole story is when your heart is not right, when, when, you're, when your heart is carnally minded, earthly minded, and you ask God to give you something, God might go ahead and give it to you. He might go ahead and give it to you. And the reason he might give it to you is so that you can see what happens when you pursue a course that's away from what God wanted for you. This is what this whole book is about. What happens when a people, when God's people turn away from him to the extent that they want to be like everybody else more than they want to be God's people. They have not learned the lesson of the Torah. Remember we talked about this a couple of times? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that central book of Leviticus with a key word of holy. This is what my people are going to be like. You're going to be different. You're going to be other. You're going to be sanctified. I, think, I don't think we know all the reasons why God gave some of these weird laws like dietary laws. We have an idea about some of those dietary laws. You know, before you had refrigeration, it wasn't a good idea to eat pork. You know, some of the other stuff. But some of the laws in there, honestly, we just don't know why God gave them. But we do know one reason he gave them, I think. And that is, you are to be a distinct people, different from the world, different from the nations around you. He didn't ever want them to forget that they are God's people. Holy. They're not like, they're not supposed to be like all the other nations around about them. But when things turn against them in chapter 4, what do they want? What's going to fix this whole deal is... If we can have a king, not just any king, we want a king like them. And then we'll be all right. So chapter 31. Chapter 4, 4,000 people died. Philistines took, you know, routed them, but they didn't take over the land. It was just, it was a defeat in battle, but it wasn't a catastrophic defeat. They recovered from it. But chapter 31... 
What happens? What happens when you want to be like all the other nations around about you? What happens when you ask God to give you a king like all the other nations? How's that going to work out with reference to the Philistines, your greatest enemy? Chapter 31 tells us it doesn't go so well. It doesn't go so well when you do things your own way instead of God's way. I really think that's what he's been building up to this whole, this whole story. And the great contrast is between Saul and David. Saul and David. It's been going back and forth between Saul and David for chapters now, right? Saul is seeking the witch of Endor, while David is seeking the, uh, the ephod, the, you know, the holy garment of the high priest, that in some way they were able to consult the mind of God. David had prophets with him. He had priests with him. He had people who were seeking God and who could reveal to him what God wanted. Before God went against Amalek, what did he do? He stopped and he consulted God. Should I go or should I not? And, he, and God said, you need to go. And David went and did what Saul had been unwilling to do. And he defeated the Amalekites. Whereas Saul, in chapter 15, had failed with reference to the Amalekites. So what happens? The whole point of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the whole point of that well, as I've mentioned to you a time, time or two, from then on in the historical books from, uh, from Joshua to Second Chronicles, <clears throat> those um, 12 books, the whole point of that historical narrative is so that you can see that God meant what he said in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, when he said in Exodus, when he said, I want you to be my people and I want you to have no other gods before me. I don't want you to make any graven images. I don't want you to dishonor my name. I don't want you to dishonor my day, the Sabbath day. I want you to treat other people the way I've, I've, I've told you to treat them. I want you to be holy. I want you to be distinct, sanctified, set apart, different from the other nations. And if you do that, I will take care of you. But if you turn your back on that, I will abandon you. Joshua to Second Chronicles is a living historical narrative of what happens when you do that or when you don't do that. And in the book of 1 Samuel, we've got examples of both. We've got examples of Israel, of their saying, you know, we don't want to do it God's way. We want to be like everybody else. God says, I'll give you that. You can have Saul. He's an impressive king. Any nation would like to have somebody like, like Saul. So the decline begins. But what, do you, what happens when you've got somebody like David who seeks the voice of God? seeks the mind of God. Well, David is blessed. So this is a living narrative of the message of the first five books of the Old Testament. And you've got that throughout again and again and again in the Old Testament. But I just think that's, that's pretty neat here what he's doing is he's helping us to see. Because you remember stories. We remember stories. Uh, as human beings, we can... We can that's, you know, one, great teachers tell stories. Jesus was a great storyteller. And the reason he told stories is because it, 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 it enacts, it, it portrays lessons in a way that you won't remember it when it's a didactic, you know, just a uh, thou shalt and thou shalt not kind of thing, right? Okay. I think that is a very important lesson. And, and I haven't done much application of this with you and me tonight, but I guess it's pretty obvious how that lesson might apply. 
Sometimes we might think that these lessons, you know, they, they, they meant something back then. God worked my, more directly with the people, but now not so much. But what we have here is a lesson that works for us at any time. And, and I think you and I probably need this lesson just as much as Israel did. Because we're so often tempted to do it our own way. To pursue our own agenda. To be like everybody else. To do it our own way. And the lesson of the Bible from the very beginning to the end of it is, if we choose to have other gods, if we choose to do it for some other agenda, it doesn't work well. You know, it doesn't work well at all. Okay. Are they on trampolines or what in the world's going on? <laughs> Y'all hear that? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I can, I can tell. Um, okay. So the last part of the chapter. Seems like there's something. I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll give you an opportunity in a minute to make some comments if you like. Um, the last part of the chapter is a, a, a segue, I think, to the next chapter. It is a, It's almost like, and some people kind of suggest this in their writings about this, it's almost like he doesn't want to end on that note. Like verse 7 would be a pretty bad way to end the book. The Philistines came and lived in them. The end. And then let's go to, go to David. Well, it's almost like the author of this book doesn't want to end on such a sour note. And, and, and maybe he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to act like Saul didn't have any redeeming qualities. Because that, that's how, how this story would end if you stopped at verse 7. That nothing that Saul did meant anything at all. And, and actually the rest of this chapter, verses 8 through the end of it, it includes something... It has something to do with a good thing Saul had done and something that you may have forgotten about. Let's look at this last paragraph. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, the gospel, that, by the way, to carry the gospel, a different kind of gospel, to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of, Be of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, and all, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, this story, why is it here? Don't know for sure. I don't know for sure why it's here. One possibility is that he didn't want to end on a bad note. Uh, another possibility, as I mentioned a second ago, is that he, he didn't want to he didn't want to leave the impression that Saul had no redeeming qualities whatsoever, as I said earlier. And what this has to do with is the people of Jabesh Gilead. This you may not remember this. This has been I guess this is before the summer when we covered. I think this is chapter eleven. But Jabesh, the people of Jabesh Gilead were in a bad situation. They were surrounded by the enemies and. They didn't have any, any way to go. The, I can't remember who it was. Was it the Ammonites? Anyway, somebody. They said, 
surrender to us, we're going to cut off your thumbs. We're going to make it really, really rough for you. Well, Saul heard of it. Saul and his people, his men, rode all night long, and they rescued the people from Jabesh, Gilead. They rescued them from Ammonites or whoever it was. So, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that we, we come to this. So Saul's dead, and the enemies and the Philistines do what people back then did, especially people like the Philistines. They cut off his head. They're going to display the trophies of war, the body of Saul and his sons. So they cut off his head, stripped off, stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land, announcing the gospel to the houses of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall. Anyway, and, and so on. So they did, they, they did this stuff, public display. And what the people of Jabesh Gilead is, they remembered what Saul had done for them. He had rescued them back in chapter 11, and they decided we're not going to let his body be desecrated and, and, and be dishonored, disrespected like this. And so they do for him in death what he had done for them in life. They rescue his body and the bodies of Jonathan and his brothers, and they bury them. They give them a proper burial, and then that's how the book ends. The, the tamarisk tree, which you may remember we talked about a few weeks ago, is a very important tree in Jabesh, and it was a, a place where Saul had been. Anyway, they buried him there. They fasted seven days out of respect for the fallen king. Some people see here, in fact, a couple of different, uh, well, a sermon I listened to and then a book I was reading uh, talked about this, seeing hints of the gospel of Christ here. Some of the wording is interesting, and then some of the parallels, I don't know how far I want to go with that kind of thinking as far as if, if this was intended, but you see they, they went out, you've got the death of Saul, and you've got the, uh, you've got the body of Saul hung, right? His, his body is hung, and the gospel that they go preach is one of victory. And some people see there sort of a, a foreshadowing in a, in a negative way of the real gospel where the body of Jesus would likewise be hung the gospel would go forth, except it would be not a gospel of death, but a gospel of resurrection. Uh, I don't want to stretch this too far to, to make some sort of an implication that that's what the author had in mind, but it's interesting to see some parallels there. I want to go back to Saul again for a minute and the way he died. Somebody was... One author um, suggested something about this, and I think is interesting. You remember about Saul? One of his primary primary problems was he was, well, I guess his his primary problem was he was self centered, and he was inordinately concerned about the way he was perceived by people, and uh, it got him into trouble. We pointed that out as we'd gone through the story. You know, a couple different times. Saul was afraid of what the people were going to do, afraid of what the people were going to think of him. Even in that moment of his greatest calamity in 1 Samuel 15, when he disobeyed God with reference to the Amalekites, Samuel came to him and he said, what's going on? And Saul said, well, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. And Samuel said, what? why do I hear all the, these animals making noises? You were supposed to destroy them. Why do I hear that? And they get into this, this, this dialogue there. 
And then, but Samuel's response to that whole thing, I mean, uh, Samuel says, God's going to take the kingdom away from you. And Saul says, but first let me go and, and honor me in front of the people. Do you remember that story, 1 Samuel 15? Honor me in front of the people. Yeah, yeah, wh whatever you're saying about disobedience and all that stuff, that's, that's fine. But honor me in front of the people. I don't want to lose face in front of the people. I don't want them to think badly of me. His other great failure was when he offered the sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. He's supposed to wait for Samuel to get there, and he didn't wait. He, he got frustrated. You remember why he got frustrated or why he got impatient? He was afraid of the people. He was afraid that they were going to they were going to um, turn against him, leave him, whatever. That was earlier. And now at the end of this, again, I don't want to read too much into this, but, but even in his moment of death, you don't see any kind of appeal to God. You don't, you don't see his crying out to the Lord one last time, God, rescue me, save me, help me. Let me die a noble death. You don't, none of that. None of that from Saul. But I guess we ought not be surprised by that at this point. Because a man who, in some ways, had a, a good beginning. He had a, a, a beginning of promise back early in the book. He has abandoned any notion whatsoever of following God. We saw that two or three chapters ago with the Witch of Endor thing. God has turned his face away from Saul, but God only did that because Saul persisted in willful disobedience for such a time that God abandoned him, which is a spiritual lesson I think we pointed out at that time. Uh, let me give you an example of this. God does this sometimes. It's a scary thing, too. Remember the book of Exodus. There, there are three things that are said about Pharaoh's heart there. It says, his heart was hard, right? But it puts it in three ways. It says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which of those is true? Trick question, but they're, they're all true. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yeah, he did. Was his heart hardened by circumstances? Absolutely. Did God harden his heart? Yes, he did. And this is the way God often works. If you persist in turning your heart away from God, God will allow you to get to a point where you cannot seek Him anymore. I think that's what the New Testament's talking about with certain, certain uh, things that we can do. Well, Hebrews 6, for example, when it's impossible for, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame, Hebrews 6 says. You can persist in rebelling against God to the point where you cannot come to Him anymore. You cannot seek Him. It's not that He won't take you back. It's that you cannot come back to Him because your heart has become so hard. God then hardens your heart and won't, you won't be able to seek Him anymore. And I think that's what happens with Saul, a living, breathing example of someone who had every opportunity to seek God, to follow God, and yet he started taking these steps away from God, wanting to please the people more than he wanted to please the Lord. And God eventually said, okay, Saul, that's what you want? You can have it. And he didn't, he didn't respond to it. So Saul seeks the witch of Endor. And then at the moment of his death, he has sunk so low that he doesn't even cry out to God as far as the text is concerned. He is concerned about what? Yeah. He doesn't want his body 
He doesn't, he, he's afraid of what they might do to his body. Not only how they might kill him, but I think he's, he's also thinking about what, what this is going to look like to the people. How's his body going to be treated after death? He knows what the Philistines do to people. And he doesn't want that done to him. So what got him in trouble with offering the sacrifice back in chapter uh, 9 or 10, wherever that was, he didn't wait long enough. He was afraid of the people. What got him in trouble with Amalek when he was afraid of the people and he gave in to the wishes of the people and he was concerned about saving face, what got him in trouble there, it's a part of his character. And what's a part of your character, it is displayed in this moment of death where he's concerned about what he's going to look like after death. Yes, yes ma'am. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Right. Um, for those who might be watching online, I'll, re I'll repeat what uh, Miss Margaret said. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, that God, it's not that God will not take somebody's repentance. It's that sometimes God will allow our hearts, if we choose to go in the direction away from Him, He will allow our hearts to become so hard that we simply cannot come back. I think that's what Hebrews 6 is talking about. I think that's what happened with Pharaoh. He was so obsessed with power and uh, his position and that, that his heart was hardened and God hardened his heart. Same thing happened with Saul. He was so concerned about his position and the people uh, and concerned about himself that he hardened his own heart and God hardened his heart and eventually turned his face away from him and Saul could not seek God anymore, even in a moment of death, which if, if at any time in your life you're going to seek God, it's going to be at that moment when you know you're about to die. If you've got any spirituality about you at all. And he doesn't even do that. That's a sad, just a sad thing. Because you see hints of this. We pointed some of this out earlier on, you know. You see hints of good things in Saul at times. And he does some good things. And it ends on that kind of note, you know. This, this is a reference back to something good he did. But even though he had done some good things, his trajectory had been away from God. And so he ends right here committing suicide in hopes that he won't lose face after death by his body being desecrated. That's exactly what happens. The Philistines get his body anyway, you know, and do what he didn't want them to do. So this is a, a negative example of what can happen. So a warning for us, and I know this is a Wednesday night crowd, maybe none of you, none of us need to hear this, but, um, man, a warning for us is those little steps we take away from God there's little compromises we make, little allowances we give ourselves. Those things we do in secret. Um, that can, that can, that can cause us to develop hearts that simply don't have spiritual sensitivity at all. That's the danger of sin. That's the danger of little sins. It's the danger of, of taking those small steps in a direction that's not consistent with the will of God because uh, it can lead to places we don't want to go, and it can lead us away. And you've seen it happen to other people, haven't you? Where people who were once faithful, once dedicated, make a few compromises, and those compromises get bigger, and then eventually a person just has no spiritual sensitivity whatsoever. And that's where Saul is, and that's how the book ends, essentially. 
is this man who had so much promise in chapter 8 uh, is dying and, and kills himself because of a loss to the Philistines. And that is what precipitated the people's request for a king. So there are lessons here for the people. Turn your heart away from God. God might answer your prayer. He may give you what you ask for. So that's one reason why when we pray, we need to pray, Lord, don't, this is what I think I need, but I don't know if it's what I need or not. <laughs> so don't give it to me if it's not what I need. Mervin. Good point. First point, in case you guys couldn't hear it, is that it's not about the nature of the sin, the kind of sin. It's the quality of your heart. It's the, it's the stance of your heart with respect to God. And, and that's what you see in Saul. David, David committed, what, adultery, murder. Uh, other, David did some pretty bad stuff, but his heart was soft toward God. And uh, that's the difference between him and Saul. And it's not, not the nature of the sin. It's the nature of the heart. It's a big deal. Good thoughts. Okay, so we bring this study to an end tonight. We're a little bit over time. I appreciate your bearing with me as we've spent some time with First Samuel, and I hope it'll be a lesson that God will keep using for us. Thanks so much. Have a good night.